On this episode of Embedded Insiders, Brandon returns from the RISC-V Summit with some fresh takes. Champions of the Open Standard ISA expect it to start displacing competitive offerings en masse over the next few years. While that remains to be seen, the introduction of custom RISC-V instruction extensions, the formation of industry-specific working groups, and advances in tools are redefining the technology's true winners. Later, Brandon and Rich interviewed David Harold, CMO at Imagination Technologies, who explains how private equity investment saved the GPU leader from potential disaster. After consecutive years of multiple double-digit gains on the back of their A-Series IP, the company is now looking to expand back into the CPU space with a new line of RISC-V-based processor IP. But how will the ARM NVIDIA situation impact their plans? Finally, assistant editor Taryn Ingmark gives us an update on the electronic component shortage, where the news isn't good. Research now estimates that supply levels will remain unstable through the first half of 2023, meaning that it may be time for many engineering organizations to break glass in case of emergency when it comes to part sourcing. Hello and welcome to Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design. I'm here with Rich Nass, who is the Executive Vice President and Brand Director of, as we call it internally, ECD. How you doing, Rich? I'm fine. Why do you always get to do the intro? Do you want to do it? Well, it's too late now. We can uh, we can do it twice. No, it's all right. We've got another we've got another 29 minutes and 40 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well, thanks. Um, So just got back from the risk five summit and during right right before I left. Big news in the industry dropped. FTC sues NVIDIA on the uh, arm acquisition. What do you make well, of that? Well, hold on. Let's be clear. Did they sue or did they stop the the, the process? Uh, so I believe they sued to stop the process of the acquisition. Okay. All right. All right. I don't want to get us sued because we're misquoted. Yeah, right. The lawyers are already they're Just already clear, here. That was Brandon Lewis who said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So the so the lawsuit was is being brought by the FTC to stop. What many uh, are saying, well, I, I mean, not saying it is the, the biggest semiconductor merger ever. Um, and the reason they're doing that is obviously to, you know, prevent a monopoly or, a, you know, a Goliath from, from existing. Um, what do you make of all that? Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's right? Do you think it'll go through? Quick it's take. fair. It's right. And while you're saying that, I was going to make a prediction. Hmm. If you believe everything out of NVIDIA, the part that they want isn't the part that's holding up the deal anyway. Mm. They want the AI part of it, not the, the, the core business, which, which is, I assume is the issue that would create a monopoly. So why not just acquire that part of the business and spin out the cores so it can remain independent? You mean just buy the AI cores? Yes. Well, the, that and it, and it, they're talking about people and IP with respect to AI. So I actually think that NVIDIA also wants the CPUs. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they want- But that's not able- what they said. Right. Yes, but, I, I believe you, but that's, but that's not what they said. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, they want those CPUs so that they can, you know, don't have to pay the licensing for all those Cortex-A cores that they're- putting in all their AI processors, you know, you still need control uh, there. Um, an interesting thing that was said by the FTC, which uh, I think you might find 
uh, amusing is that they call the arm the Switzerland of the semiconductor industry. What do you make of that? Well, it's actually accurate. I'm, I'm good with that. I mean, they sell to everybody. And you, I was going to say they don't play favorites. It's impossible not to play favorites, but they do a pretty good job at not playing favorites. Yeah. I mean, it depends who you ask, I guess. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty funny at, um, I don't think that, I don't think that arm had anything to do with this, but at the risk five summit, which was actually DAC that risk five joined at the last second, the up on the second floor where the arm booth was the risk five summit, all their booths like dropped in right next door. Um, so it appeared as though arm had purchased a booth right in the middle of the risk five ah, summit. Okay. <laughs> and, and I don't believe they were too happy about that, but um, you know, I, like I said, it, it depends who you ask, uh, you know, uh, if you ask certain tools vendors, if you ask, Obviously, certain processor and IP vendors, if arms Switzerland, I think you'd get a different answer. But hey, I think that there is a possibility that this still goes through. Do you agree or disagree? Not in its current form. Not in its current form, no. But I was talking to uh, some people at the show, and there is an something that's happened in history was brought up as a possible path forward to this is remember when alphabet was created google mm-hmm. created alphabet it's so, sort of similar thing you know you, you sort of up level uh either a parent organization that is you know basically a shell company or or maybe you know nvidia goes up and you you know you split it off and you just put a big barrier between the two businesses and you know i i could see that as a path forward plus you know qualcomm actually already does that right yeah i don't think that's the reason i don't behind alphabet though to to put up a wall between various businesses i think it is i, th- I think that the reason that alphabet exists is to separate different parts of of google you know of, of google's many flagships because i mean gosh if you think that nvidia is a going to be a powerhouse even more so with arm I mean, let's not even start to think about all of the different ways that Google, you know, well, ranging from search to advertising. powerful in our industry? Uh, you know, I've, who are those guys anyway? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there are paths forward, but yeah, I agree that in, in its current incarnation, I mean, I don't even understand how that would work from a business standpoint to have you know it just doesn't even make sense to have the licensing and and nvidia's current business under the same roof per se um but i mean i one of the things we talked about a long time ago is would they just shut that part of the business down well that would be uh i I, it would it would die a slow death anyway man talk about reasons to stop them stop the acquisition right I mean, what would that do to computing in general? That would be a talk about turning things upside down. It would make our lives interesting. We don't have a stake in it. <laughs> so NLOS enters the IP business. <laughs> um, there you go. Well, so tell me more about what, what you saw at the Risk Five Summit. Yeah, I think I think that was where I was going to go next, which is. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing for Risk Five, or doesn't matter? 
the fact that it's being halted. Yeah. That's probably a bad thing. Well, I don't think it matters. I mean, if if it, if I had to pick one or the other, I'd say it's a bad thing. But I, don't, I honestly don't think it matters. I think there's so much momentum behind Risk Five now that it doesn't really matter. You know, I think as well that um, it's a sort of inconsequential. I think that before when it was announced, you know, it, it didn't really matter. It's not like people were like, "Thank God, we were waiting for a reason to switch to Risk Five. Um, you know, those sockets, you know, people already had their architecture chosen. It, it didn't change a whole lot. Um, and I, I think the same thing here. Now, whether or not we're going to see some fear, uncertainty and doubt cast into the media um, because of this is, is another question. But at risk five, you know, I we we I thought we settled this debate a long time ago, whether or not it was for real and, you know, how successful it was going to be moving forward. And, and I do think it's here to stay. But ironically you know they're they're sitting there the you know Callista Redman and uh Youngs up from sci-fi talking about how successful risk five is and the billions of cores that are shipped and I have to say yes there are billions of cords that are shipped however they're all deeply embedded or not all of them but a great great many of them are deeply embedded um, a lot. well I mean if you're talking about it being successful from a commercial standpoint, the reason that there are so many billions of those cores is that WD and NXP and all of these other SOC vendors are not going to, they don't want to pay ARM to license a Cortex-M0 to just do power management, right, on their on their bigger SOC. They, they want to drop a free core that is small and simple. So um, why isn't that success? Well, I said commercially successful because those companies are using open source, you know, they're making their own open source cores and they're not paying anybody anything for them. Now that's a different ballgame from what. But that's sci-fi. commercially successful for NXP and for WD. Right. Yeah. But if you're talking about an alternative to ARM, that's not really that. Uh, no, it's not. Right. No. And the other, and the other part about it is, you know, the way that it looks to me right now uh, is that, and I think to the industry in general, you know, Risk Five has has done a really good job of adding extensions on top of the base ISA um, that are really tuned towards different things, which allows you to keep the instruction set architecture small. Um, but there are also companies like Codasip who their entire reason for being is to add custom instructions. And so mm-hmm. if you want to build a, a core um, for specific use cases, which RISC-V is also doing, the foundation is, has all these working groups that are targeting specific applications, you know, automotive, industrial, AI, whatever. Um, if you start adding a bunch of custom instructions to tune that core towards that specific end application, then you're really not any different from ARM at that point anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're doing on a, on a point-by-point basis where, um, you know, Big customer X wants you to want Sci Five, which we've heard of before, to develop a very specialized core. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you, then your arm. Yep, got it. You know, one of the um, the proof points for me, one of the more, I'll say, conservative vendors in in our space, Green Hills, is supporting Risk Five, and um, that to me was a seminal moment. Is that the right word? Um, that if they're going to spend the R&D to support this, it's got to be pretty for real. Mm, uh, mm, I don't know. I mean, 
I, I met with Green Hills at the show and you know where they were? They were at the microchip booth. So, you know, Green Hill porting to risk five, which risk five are they porting to, right? I mean, it, it's a safer bet to, to port to microchip polar fire, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't see them. I, I, and I don't know. I, I don't know all the places that risk five is Green Hills ported uh, risk five to, but um, they did do a, a lot of business in the storage business or a lot of work in the storage business. So I think you can guess uh, who's maybe some of their customers are there. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think that anybody who spins up a risk five core <laughs> Green Hills is necessarily porting to. So that's interesting. But I do think that the big winners out of all this stuff is if, if risk five becomes an option to tune your system to optimize your system, you know, end of Moore's law and all that, you know, add some custom instructions, develop a core. The big, the big winners are the tools guys, you know, all the empiricists of the world. They, they will be. Correct. They're not correct. yet. And correct. that's still a deficiency because they, the risk five tools are not nearly as good as the arm based tools. Um, but that is a very big win. And I think that's where I want to take an LOS into the tool business. Very, very good. So uh, who's who's working on the IDE? <laughs> <laughs> I will nominate you. Thank you. I'm going to hire Jean Lebras to do that for us. <laughs> you can find 2021 Risk 5 Summit Conference proceedings on the Risk 5 International YouTube channel. Now, David Harold of Imagination Technologies explains how the IP company bounced back from a rocky 2016-2017 to regain its position on the GPU leaderboard and where they go from here. Imagination and MIPS sort of went their separate ways and there was some, I think that you had a long-standing relationship with Apple that that ended and I think that I'm not speaking just for myself that we were a little concerned about the future of imagination technologies. But I heard from a little bird that you were doing pretty well, actually better than than pretty well. What's happened? What's going on over there? Yeah, I you know, I I think you're you're right to have had some concern. And it would have been a terrible shame, right? You know, imagination in my mind is a company which has great technology and should be a serious player on the world stage. But we do like to have a crisis, you know, every now and then. And 2016, 2017 were pretty tough for us. Um, you know, we, we had some change at the top. We had, you know, some disagreements with a major customer. And it took us a while to write that ship. And, you know, I think, you know, looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, of course, you know, we, we came through it in a very positive way. We turned around, you know, the numbers. So revenue is really good. Profitability is good. You know, we're a private company, so I'm not afraid to say we've done well this year, not just last year. And I think we're we're headed in the right direction. But also, you know, we were lucky because in some ways, I think we've ended up the poster child for why private equity can work when it works well. You know, we we were bought by Canyon Bridge. They came in, you know, there was no debt attached to this. They treated the company really well. And, you know, they looked at us and they said, okay, we, we, we can see some of what the problem is with imagination. And, you know, some of it was that we were spread too wide. So we did divest ourselves of bits of the business that weren't focused on IP. So, you know, some of the services and design um, and, you know, some parts of the company that maybe didn't fit the overall heterogeneous IP message that we were starting to develop. So some of the connectivity technology went. 
And they said, look, you're really good at GPU. You know, you revolutionized um, the market when you decided to focus on GPU um, for mobile. And, you know, we, we, we should get that right. So they gave us money to put into R&D for what at the time we were calling GPU 19, which was a project to, to stop being, you know, so incremental with our GPUs. You know, for several series, we had sort of, you know, oh, it's 5% more performance. And I mean, that's fine. You can sort of keep up with the Joneses, but it doesn't get you from a position where, you know, you're, you're slipping down the ranks and becoming, you know, number two, for example, by volume, which we'd done. Um, so we put a lot of time and effort in and we came out with a GPU, which wasn't just 5% better. It was two and a half times better than, than the generation that had followed it and also allowed us to open up new spaces. So, you know, for 15 years, we did not have a single customer in the desktop market. You know, we did not do high-end GPU. We topped out with sort of, you know, ultra uh, mobile. Um, and and, and that, was, that was okay. But A-Series gave us the ability to get into the desktop and data center space, which has become a major licensing area for us um, in the two years uh, following that launch. And let us turn around the company. And, and there were a few other things. You know, we, we managed to sort of right the ship with, with that um, major customer that we'd uh, had some problems with. You know, they signed up for another license at the start of 2020. And, you know, we're, we're in pretty good shape. I'm, I'm not worried about the company anymore. I hope you're not either. But when you're funded the way you guys are, it, it's almost always set up to be sold. Yes. Um, so it, if, if I'm a potential customer, that's the way I'm sort of looking at it, that this is a little scary because these guys are going to be sucked into, one of the, into somebody else eventually, sooner or later. You know, I, I, think, I think it's always sensible to, to have the thought when you look at our industry that M&A happens, right? And, you know, that, that has got to be a, a major fear right now. If you're an ARM customer, you know, you look at the situation there, with NVIDIA coming in um, and, you know, private equity, they're not there to pass a business down to their children. You know, that is not the model. So you know, I'm, I'm not telling anybody any secrets when one says that at some point, of course, they want to see a return on their money and, you know, have some sort of, of, of exit scenario. But I don't think, and, you know, I'm obviously I am not part of Canyon Bridge and, you know, in the end, it's their decision how they go. But I don't think uh, I'm speaking out of turn to say I don't uh, think that, you know, our customers should or would have any concerns about, you know, their intentions for this business. They, they have put a lot of time and effort into making it a really solid IP business. And, you know, that that is the future for imagination. You know, one of the things that we've seen recently is a desire from the industry to have more choice in IP. And that's one of the reasons that it's uh, comforting and exciting to see that imagination has done done well, really well lately. You mentioned ARM and NVIDIA. I want to come back to that. But before we do that, let's just keep doing, going down the, the IP path and having diversity of choice. You've started to dabble in RISC-V with CPUs. So there are a couple of questions there. Number one, why uh, did you think it was a time to get involved in RISC-V and RISC-V and CPUs? And secondly, you divested a bunch of things that weren't core to your business and, you know, this is new to your business. So <laughs> may yeah, I, I mean, speak first before you do uh, that? Of course you can. 
Brendan, why do you think the industry wants choice? Engineers keep going back to the same well for the same thing over and over. Why, do you, why did you pick that posture? Because it's the one I've used in the past. Your statement about that the industry wants choice, I, I don't agree with that. I think that the industry wants choice because when you, especially when you're looking at cost and, and you know, let, let's, let's separate the engineering portion of this question from the, from the business side of the question. We'll start with the business side of the question. Currently where risk five is doing really, really well is in a lot of deeply embedded controllers that are just doing things like power management and, you know, offloading specific tasks from the, the, the principal host. And if you can save yourself millions of dollars in licensing fees there, I mean, that's sort of a no brainer, right? It's not exposed to, to most of the end users. So, you know, who cares? The second part of that is I think we're getting into a place and David and others would probably agree where we realize that Moore's law is not a horse that we can ride forever. And we need to optimize the system in different ways than we have in the past or glean performance gains in different ways than we have. And a lot of that now is going to come out of being more application specific. And I think that that right now is the promise of risk five is we're going to, we're going to have some more tuned offering uh, to whatever your specific end use case is. And when you have a model like arm, you know, you, you, nece you necessarily can't do that. Just, just based on the fact that you're trying to, to license as many cores as you can, you're, you're not creating a differentiated solution necessarily for every single customer that's out there. You know, I guess I'd come in with a view that sort of lies somewhere in between, you know, the, 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 the pole of what, what Rich was saying and what you're saying, Brandon. You know, I think it, it's not about choice, right? You know, in the end, what our customers mostly want is an ability to focus on you know, the core of their business, um, whether that's, you know, autonomous driving systems or it's cameras or it's, you know, it's a mobile phone, you know, running lots and lots of different applications. They're not fundamentally concerned with, you know, do I choose ARM or MIPS or RISC-V or, or, or whatever else. They want to get to the end of their journey, which is, you know, delivering a domain-specific product that is good for their application. And, you know, but I do think, right, you know, over the last decade, if people could have bought, you know, different kinds of IP, which are standards based and easy to, you know, move around from vendor to vendor and, you know, get a solution which is performant for their application in the way that they have been with ARM, but, you know, from another uh, um, IP, um, they would have done it. You know, we have ended up in a position where there's a monolithic supplier in the market and there are lots of problems. You know, Brandon mentioned cost. That's one of them. But, you know, also, I think over time, you know, you, you get less control, you get less customization, you know, you get less say in what those end IPs look like. You know, for, for lots of our history, we've engaged early on with, you know, lead customers who say, you know what, I want the product to look like this. And the product has ended up, at least the first product has ended up looking like the product they want. But in a market with less choice, it is less easy for the customer to come in and say, hey, you know what, customize it this way, make it like this. And I think, you know, one of the, the beauties of, of Risk Five is that actually it's giving some of that choice back to people. 
um, partly because of the way it's architected, you know, with the with the extensions model, partly because, you know, there are lots of different vendors and it's very easy to, to, to implement. Um, and partly because, you know, there are a lot of hungry companies, you know, that are not armed. They're not in a position to say, oh, we might do that in two years. You know, now you've asked for it. Lots of risk five companies are going, yeah, we really want your business. We're going to do that for you right now. And so, you know, I think there are lots of incentives for people to want to engage um, with, with the risk five uh, um, vendors today. But, you know, it's going to be very slow. Uh, you know, we see this as a 10 year slow moving discontinuity, not, you know, a revolution that's going to see um, the existing uh, leading supplier against the wall tomorrow. So is your go to market then with this eventually down the line, you just want to be able to offer more and more of, the, of, a, of a complete SOC? Is that why you're playing there? We think CPU is really important. You know, CPU defines the architecture of the SOC. It defines, you know, approaches to things like security within the SOC. We've always wanted to have CPU. You know, I mean, it, it, it's true. We've just launched a product last week. But, you know, we did our first CPUs in 2001. And we originally did those because we needed a CPU. We needed a microcontroller in our GPUs. So we designed our own IP to do that. And then we ended up selling that to some customers in you know, the digital audio market and the TV market. And you know, it, it, it had some legs, but it is very difficult right, to come in with a CPU from nowhere and to build a suitable ecosystem around that. And so, you know, in, in um, uh, due time, you know, we had an opportunity to buy MIPS. So we bought MIPS and, you know, we launched three families of cores and, you know, shipped over 3 billion devices through our customers with MIPS inside and got the CPU bug. But, you know, eventually we found ourselves divesting ourselves of MIPS partly because, you know, it made it easier for us to go private in 2017 when we needed to, but partly also because, you know, back at that point, we were already looking at RISC-V and, you know, we had a strong sense that RISC-V might be the future direction for, you know, a challenge to the status quo in, in, in the CPU market. That's great. So what does it look like moving forward? I mean, you have this catapult line of, of CPUs. Um, are those going to be more general purpose offerings that are there to support, you know, some customization that you do on the GPU front? Or do you think that this is going to eventually result in a, a series and an evolving series of CPU offerings? So, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is, you know, we're making RISC-V CPUs, but that doesn't tie the rest of our IP to RISC-V. Um, I think the last time I counted, we worked with 16 different uh, types of CPU over our history, and we are extremely agnostic and intend to continue to be. But I think, you know, what it gives us is an opportunity to, to really deliver what we would call a heterogeneous mm -hmm. solution. And, you know, by that, we mean different kinds of IPs, which are very good at the particular workload that they're specialized for, brought together to create a solution. And, you know, we, we do think that that's the way forward. You know, you look at the workloads that are being demanded now. I'm not saying that, you know, there's no scaling left in, in Moore's law, that, you know, you're not going to see more performance. What I'm saying is you're not going to see enough performance. 
and that actually you need to innovate in terms of what IP you are delivering if you're going to keep up with the workloads required for, you know, say an auto autonomous uh, driving system. So, you know, we do think the way forward for that is a heterogeneous solution. And in order to deliver that, we do need a CPU along with our AI and our GPU uh, and, and our connectivity technologies. Disclaimer, you are not affiliated with NVIDIA, ARM, the FTC, you know, any, <laughs> anybody else. No, no, I'm not. Um, I have no investment in any company uh, being mentioned there. But obviously the news over the last couple of weeks has been that, you know, the FTC blocked uh, the, the acquisition of ARM. What do you think that means for the industry moving forward? Um, do you think the deal will find a way to go through? Do you think we're back to square one? Do you think um, it's a good thing? It's a bad thing? What are your general thoughts? Right now, there is a great deal of uncertainty around you know a major competitor in this market and you know it is unquestionably making people looking for ip quite nervous you know that they're nervous about the situation with the acquisition and to some extent they're, they're nervous about the geopolitical aspects of this you know about how will ip continue to be supplied in china for example um, so you know we we are probably benefiting to some extent from, from that uncertainty um, as a competitor. I honestly find it very difficult to say, you know, long-term actually what the best outcome I think is, you know, should, should um, be taken over by NVIDIA or should they remain an IP company? Um, I don't know. Best for who? Best for I want, me. I just want to clarify. Best for me. Oh okay. yes. You know, I've, I, I think, you know, NVIDIA clearly uh, um, have a very good reason for wanting to buy ARM. Um, I'm slightly less clear why ARM would want to be bought, but I could understand why SoftBank would want them to be bought. But, you know, for, from the point of view of my own business, I, I actually do not know what the better outcome is, whether they get taken over or not. Okay. I think it's pretty clear that if they're taken over, it's better for your business but we can certainly have that debate another day. I was waiting for you to say something. <laughs> you, I, I mean, it, it, it's, so, it's so disruptive, right? You know, right now, um, I would probably predict that the deal is not going to go through. I, I don't know if you guys would agree with me or not. I think it's back to the drawing board, but I think it'll, I think it'll find a way. Yeah, I think we're on record as saying exactly that. So I don't want to contradict myself, but um, <laughs> I, I I do think that we think it'll go through somehow. Maybe not in its in the form that was originally planned, but somehow it'll go through. Mm -hmm. And and what do you think the far side of that deal looks like? You know, do do you think that will be a shakeup to the IP market? If it does or, go or do through, think, or do you think ARM will continue to supply IP in the way that they have been doing? I do not think they will continue to supply IP in the way that they have. Yeah. I would agree. Especially when that. they appoint Brandon as CEO. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have big plans. You know, I, you I, know I, I, there might be an expectation that I would, you know, wish ill on ARM in, in some way. But, you know, you, you've got to remember that actually, you know, for a lot of engineers, a way to succeed is to take an ARM CPU and to take uh, a GPU from Imagination Technologies and put those two things together 
And then you look, you look at products that lead in the market, that's pretty much the combination. So, you know, that's why I have sort of mixed feelings about what the best outcome actually is, uh, you know, for, from my point of view. And this ad was brought to you by David Harold of Imagination <laughs> Technologies. <laughs> yeah, indeed. More information on Imagination Technologies' latest IP offerings is available at www.imaginationtech.com. Next, Taryn Ingmark reviews findings from SupplyFrame's 2022 Commodity IQ report that reveal more bad news for semiconductor and electronic component supplies. As the semiconductor shortage continues to wreak havoc on the electrical industry, more component supply dimensions are falling into the red, pushing predicted market stabilization dates even further back. Market intelligence firm SupplyFrame's most recent Commodity IQ or CIQ report on the semiconductor and electronic components market indicates that lead times, supplies, and prices were actually getting worse as we entered quarter four of 2021. According to SupplyFrame CEO Steve Flagg, earlier outlooks from around the industry suggesting the market would stabilize by mid-2022 are now being revised to dates in the first half of 2023. According to the company, quote, the CIQ report shows that lead time dimensions in red have risen 55% quarter over quarter after doubling in the third quarter, and it forecasts that 66% of all pricing dimensions are poised to increase. This is occurring as the industry grapples with Delta variant disruptions, expanding Chinese electricity consumption restrictions, massive end-of-life announcements for programmable logic and other devices, and prices rising by as much as 100%, end quote. It appears the industry has entered the eye of the perfect storm. Skyrocketing demands for all kinds of electronic products was already pushing chip production to its limits. Then, COVID-19 drove the world's population into their living rooms, where the desire for more electronic products became even more pronounced. So, are we really staring down the barrel of a 2023 market correction? It would appear so. Corroborating the supply frame conclusions are IBM CEO Arvind Krishna and Glenn O'Donnell, Research Director and Vice President of advisory firm Forrester. Both agree that the world could be feeling the effects of this global shortage until at least 2023. In less specific but still unencouraging findings, tech research firm Gartner recommended OEMs who were dependent on single suppliers or individual sectors branch out to avoid exhausting all resources on a single type of technology. Indeed, now that businesses are being confronted with the likelihood of even more delays, Flag asserts, the old-school methods of dealing with disruption are no longer good enough. SupplyFrame gathers information from more than 10 million professionals and electronic engineers and 350-plus network partners that generate real-time data for the CIQ report. More information can be found on SupplyFrame's Commodity IQ report at https colon slash slash supplyframe.drift.click slash commodity IQ dash datasheet. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.